Okay, and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you January 11th, 2017. And you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast, where we demystify the complexities of finance. Today, we're going to address what to expect as a first-time home buyer. A lot of people can get caught off guard by any number of issues when buying their first home, and you only really find out how bad it is after the fact. And if only you could go back and tell yourself, you'd probably have a lot of advice which you wish you had before you bought the home. So we want to go ahead and do that for you today, and that way we can save you a lot of headache and pain before you have to run into it as a first-time homebuyer. Today's episode is hosted by myself, Dallas Post, founder of the Post Money Plan, as well as Jason Colwick. So to begin, I think it would be advantageous to describe why somebody might want to own real estate compared with renting, or vice versa, and the pros and cons of both. I think that's a good place to start because it's definitely the question to ask yourself when considering buying a house is, does it make sense for me financially to own this home versus renting? Absolutely. So obviously when you're renting, you're basically going to compare your rents with any mortgage payment and ancillary payments. So if you do a personal financial calculation and discover that owning is cheaper than renting, then you should own. On the flip side, if you discover that renting is cheaper than owning, then you should rent. In addition to this, the benefits of home ownership are somewhat intangible. For instance, people get increased peace of mind when they buy their own home because they can remodel or live in the home as they please, which is not typically a possibility when renting. I just give the counter argument to that being that on the one side, you might say, oh, you have peace of mind because you have your own thing that you own and you have that locked down and there's a sense of maybe accomplishment or pride there. But on the other hand, you kind of have an increased sense of worry because now you're responsible for this piece of property, which was previously your landlord's responsibility. And in that case, when something breaks, it's now you that has to do it and you that has to pay for it. But like you said, you do have the discretion now that if you want to install a new bathroom or a new bedroom, you have that authority because it belongs to you. And I think it's also important to discuss that the price of real estate is governed by the supply and the demand for real estate. And the demand for real estate is almost directly proportional to the population of an area. And because, as we've seen historically in the past, and will probably be the continual trend, the population of the world, of the United States and other developed countries, and undeveloped countries, typically goes up over time, which means that the value or the demand for real estate will perhaps also go up. Now, there are obviously some exceptions to this rule. The most recent housing crisis comes to mind and will perhaps happen again in the future. But over the long haul, it seems to be the trend that real estate prices are quite stable and typically increase over a long period of time. Yeah, I I would reiterate that the demand side of the equation for housing is going to constantly increase. You have a, a pretty good headwind most of the time with real estate prices due to population increase. Although sometimes population doesn't increase in little pockets, but you have that headwind with regard to demand and therefore pricing with real estate. The caveat is credit. When the economy is booming, credit is expanding, banks are making more loans, people are willing to take on more debt and pay higher prices for real estate. But then when the economy crashes, banks stop making loans, people stop taking on debt, And then people aren't able to fork out money for a mortgage and therefore stop buying houses or start selling them at depressed prices. So you can have that ebb and flow due to credit. But like you said, you do have that constant headwind of population increase. 
And just like in any market, it's important to understand that some deals can be bad and some deals can be good. There are real estate horror stories of people and there are real estate success stories. So obviously it makes sense to educate oneself and gather all the appropriate information to make an informed decision before making such a significant purchase in life. Yeah, exactly. When you're considering buying your first home, the thing you want to think about is planning as much as possible for the long term because it's very easy to think short term. So you usually don't have a problem thinking short term. You can think about this is my condition right now. But if you take into account what's on the horizon, maybe five years out, because to consider buying a home, you probably want to be living in a location for at least four or five years before it starts to pay off as a general rule of thumb. And the longer you live somewhere in the same place, the more it makes sense to own it versus the shorter you plan to live in a place, the less it makes sense to own it. If you're only going to be somewhere one year, between closing costs and insurance and all the rest, it's very unlikely that you're going to come out ahead. So that just goes to show that planning for the long term pays off because when you're buying a home, it's going to make sense anyway to be buying it when you're planning to be somewhere for a while. Well, that's a good segue into step one of home ownership, which is how do you start? What's the first step to buying a house? It's actually defining your budget, defining your lifestyle, defining what you want, what area of town you want to live in, and then going from there, writing it all down on paper. So how does one establish a budget? How do you know how much mortgage you can afford, how much down payment you can afford, and all of these things? As far as the mortgage goes, the typical number that the lenders will use if you're using a loan to buy a house is called debt-to-income ratio. Typically, it's around 33%. In other words, if your gross income is about three times greater than the mortgage payment, that's the ceiling that you can afford. So for instance, to make the math easy, if you make $6,000 a month income, then you can afford theoretically a $2,000 mortgage, plus or minus five or so percentage points, depending on the lender. So that is a good baseline number to sort of determine how much you're willing or able to afford. Now, for some people, maybe that's on the high side and that seems unrealistic. They don't want to spend a third of their income on housing, so they might opt for a lower debt to income ratio. But across the board, that seems to be a typical number in current market conditions for some lenders. The thing that I would add there is you don't need to get up to that. Just because a bank would offer you to borrow that much doesn't mean you should extend yourself all the way up to paying the price for a house where it would put you at a debt-to-income ratio of 33%. Because if the market is such that you can find a house where your debt-to-income would only be 15% and you would still have a reasonable house, you should go ahead with that because you don't need to stretch yourself and put yourself in a risky situation that otherwise isn't necessary. Now, while we're talking about debt-to-income ratio, there are two extra considerations that goes into this formula. If you have a spouse or you have two incomes in the family, both are counted. And additionally, if you have additional debts, for instance, a car loan or another house, that counts against your income. So it's important to consider that when you're writing the numbers on pen and paper before you start contacting lenders for this amount. The second consideration when buying a house is the down payment amount. So obviously, you have to pay anywhere from 0 to 100% of the housing price up front when you purchase it. Not a lot of lenders do 0% nowadays. That's quite rare to find with a typical mortgage. The baseline standard, industry standard, is 20%. That's somewhat on the conservative side, however, because some lenders are willing to allow buyers to put down significantly less than 20%, sometimes as low as 5%. Now, at the end of 2016, there's some FHA loans that are going down to 3% down payments. So once you've decided your debt-to-income ratio, 
ceiling and you've decided the down payment that you are willing or able to put down. A typical rule of thumb for how to decide how much to put down on a house is as close to that 20% number as possible and or more provided that you not dip into your emergency fund savings. So a good rule of thumb is to have six months living expenses in savings. So any superfluous cash on top of that would go towards the down payment. And it's very important to emphasize when deciding on this budget and deciding on your lifestyle decisions and choices and all of these things to err on the side of conservatism. A first-time homebuyer needs to have their expectations in check because they understand the concept of humility and the fact that the first house they buy will certainly not be their dream house. Yeah, I think that's a good point to make. Uh, I'll just reemphasize it. It's unrealistic for your first home to be your dream home. If you're out of college and then eventually getting to the point where you're buying your first starter home and you're thinking of buying a home that's on the order of what you came from when you were living at home with your parents, it's not going to be the same. Your parents worked decades to be able to afford that lifestyle. So it's usually unrealistic to have your first home be the same quality as your parents' home, which you left when you left for college. The first home that I bought was around about $100,000, which meant my mortgage was very, very cheap compared to my income at the time. And that was just a very large weight off my shoulders because I did not have much stress regarding a high mortgage. That's just a, a classic investment principle is that you always want to have a margin of safety in whatever kind of financial endeavor you're doing. And when you stretch yourself too thin or if you make it so that your debt to income ratio is really high and you have no cash available in between paychecks, you're really stretching yourself thin and any unplanned expense could cause financial stress. Now, up to this point, we have not approached a lender to obtain the funds to purchase a house. So because we're talking about first-time homebuyers, more likely than not, they're going to use debt or aka a mortgage to purchase the home. Obviously, you can certainly purchase a home for cash. All you have to do is circumvent the step where you approach a lender. But what you can do before you start shopping and after you decide on your budget you can approach a lender and become pre-approved, which means you submit all of your paperwork and you apply and say, hey lender, I would like to be pre-approved for X number of dollars of loan, and any house you find within that ceiling would qualify you to purchase. On the flip side, you can also find a home first and then approach a lender with the exact number and then become qualified in that process. So I think it's important now that we've established what our budget is to talk about how to approach lenders and obtain funding for something as significant as 80 or higher percent of the purchase price of a home. So it's actually quite easy. As we said earlier, there are typically two options you have, publicly backed mortgages or privately backed mortgages. Privately backed mortgages might be a bank or they might be a lending company. All you have to do is simply pick up the phone or go on their website and call their receptionist and say, I would like to apply for a loan, please, and walk in the office and drop off all your information and apply. It's as simple as that. Before you ask for a loan, they will ask you what type of loan you want. Traditionally, there are three main types of loans for residential properties. Number one is primary residence, number two is secondary residence, and number three would be investment property. Now the interest rates and the terms of the loans might vary from one to the other, but as I mentioned before, it's very crucial to be transparent with your lender and not say that you want an investment property when you actually want a primary residence or vice versa. One thing I think is worth noting here is that something you should know as a first-time homebuyer is that the bank, in all honesty, is not your friend. 
even though they'll be smiling and they'll be saying, oh yeah, we're happy to help you out and we'll do these things for you. They are trying to make money from giving you a loan. So when they tell you, yeah, you're fine, you can do this, you can do that, you need to second guess the things that they're telling you. Precisely. And don't take it for granted. Precisely. It's important to take what they say with a grain of salt because as you said, they want the deal to happen. They want the mortgage to go through so they make their commission. So what you need to do, it's a little bit like going to the doctor and he suggests a surgery that you intuitively know that you don't need. You have the authority as the patient, as the buyer, as the individual to say, no, I'm in control here. You are my employee. I'm calling the shots. This is not what I want. And then when the lender shows you some different mortgage options and they say, do you want a 15-year or a 30-year? And you see the 30-year is a lower payment. That doesn't mean it's automatically a better option. A lower monthly payment does not necessarily equate to a lower overall cost for you. You may end up with a higher interest rate on your mortgage, or you may end up paying more in interest and having less cash to show for it in the end. The magic number with regard to interest and loans is obviously the interest rate. That is the one single most important number within all of the documentation that summarizes your loan in one concise number. The lower the interest rate, the cheaper your loan cost will be over the long run. Now, most loans are fixed, which means the interest rate does not change over the lifetime. The traditional two options are 15 years or 30-year amortization schedule, which essentially means it's going to take 15 or 30 years to pay off. Obviously, the one that pays off sooner is going to have a higher premium than the one that pays off later. Perhaps the interest rates might be comparable. Additionally, there are loans called balloon payment loans, which is perhaps an interest-only loan for a short period of time, and then after a certain number of years, all of these payments balloon and you must pay the entire amount of the loan. This is more common for commercial loans than residential loans. However, it is an option, so it's important to understand the different types while applying because, as we said earlier, you are in the driver's seat, so you will tell the lender what type of loan you want. So... Let's talk about all of the supporting documentation and the approval process for obtaining financing. It's quite simple. You fill out an application the same way you might fill out a job application or a renter's application. You provide all of your personal information and supporting evidence to support your incomes and tax returns and all these types of things, and then the lender will make a decision. So let's get specific on the exact types of supporting evidence you need to provide so that you might be able to provide these ahead of time or create a data book on your computer with all these files for a future home buying purchase. Obviously, one of the most important components to this debt-to-income formula are your debts and your incomes. So the number one piece of information that the lender needs are your pay stub information for the current time period, and then your tax returns for the most recent two years is typically how far they reach back. So you need to be saving an electronic version of your tax returns, the complete 1040 and all of your schedules on an electronic file on your computer on a flash drive somewhere easily available that you can provide to lenders when they ask it. So we talked about pay stubs. Most employers will provide electronic pay stubs to their employees. So you usually need to have a few months of pay stubs on record as well as two years of tax returns as we mentioned. The next thing that the lender will ask for is your bank statements, and this is typically from the last three months or so, because what happens is a lot of people might ask friends or family for cash gifts to help them for a down payment for this, and the lender wants to prevent this by going back in time 
and they will go back in time as far as it takes to assure that you're not borrowing any money on top of the money that you're borrowing from them to purchase the home. So everything needs to be transparent when you provide information to your lenders. Do not ever lie to them or exaggerate your financials to them because they will find out. The next piece of documentation you will need is obviously your identification, perhaps a driver's license or passport to verify your identity. And then they might ask for your rental history as well. Because if you were not able to pay your rents or you have a ding on your credit because you missed payments on your rents, that is obviously going to impact their decision on whether or not to lend from you. Nextly, they're going to ask you to fill out a personal financial statement, which is essentially a net worth calculator of a snapshot in time of what all of your assets are and what all of your liabilities are. This is actually an interesting study because the first time I filled out one, I actually didn't know what my net worth was. So it was interesting to fill that piece of paper out and figure out what all my assets were and what all of my debts were and what my net worth was, which is simply the assets minus the liabilities. And finally, the lender might ask for some miscellaneous documentation, for instance, a college diploma, an affidavit stating certain facts or figures, and perhaps any professional or personal certifications you might have with regard to your job. So once you've provided sufficient documentation to your lender, they will either approve or reject your loan based on the information you've provided them. Now, you will be doing yourself and perhaps your spouse if you're co-signing on a loan a very, very huge favor if you consolidate all of these documentation in a very concise, easy-to-read location. So if your files and figures are immaculate and easily identifiable, that is a lender's dream. Messy or incomplete documents cause a lot of headache and confusion, and because the lender has so much power to reject or accept your loan, it is important not to withhold any information and to make everything as clear and transparent as possible. If they reject your loan, obviously you can't get a loan from them. You either move on to the next person or you re-examine why they may have rejected your loan and then try to rectify the situation. Maybe you'll have to wait one more year to get one more year of tax returns in. If you just started a fresh job and you're six months out of college, typically a lender is not going to lend to you. So now that we've established a budget and decided on a down payment and what kind of house you want, the next step is obviously to shop around and to decide on a house. So there are tons of websites, you know, Zillow.com and a lot of local websites for real estate in the area. But a typical strategy is to hire a real estate agent to filter and search based on all of your criteria, the real estate market for you so that you don't have to sift through dozens of houses and find these things on your own. Once you've landed on a few houses that meet your needs, what you do is you set up a viewing and you simply go and check them out and see if they're what you envisioned. The rule of thumb is to keep multiple options, perhaps three or four houses, on the table so that you're not in need mode because necessity never makes for a good purchase. You want to have the ability to walk away, always. That makes for easier negotiation where you have leverage in a negotiation. Precisely. And speaking of negotiation, so it's the same as buying a car. You never have to take the sticker price at face value. Everything is negotiable in real estate. The buyer will sell the house for as much as he's willing to sell it and vice versa. So if a buyer lists a house at $200,000, you can put an offer in for significantly lower. 
Now, to save everybody time and mental energy, it's typically not a smart idea to undercut these offers by on the order of 50% or so, but typically asking for favors, free inspections, or repaired roofs, or something along those lines, some sort of ancillary benefit, is typically a smart move. Because a lot of these houses are listed with cushion. So when you're in that position where you have multiple options which you're weighing when you're picking a house and you're not married to just one choice, and if if you get to the point of making an offer on one of them and you make an offer lower than they're willing to accept, you can say, that's all right, I will move on and look for something else. And then you make an offer on the next house. And if they pass you up, you can move on to the next house. So having those multiple options, make sure that you're getting a good price, you're getting good value for what you're actually trying to buy. But assuming they approved your loan, the lender will commission an appraisal of the property to ensure that its value is consistent with the loan they are providing you. And additionally, they will ask you if you want to obtain an inspection or hire an inspector to check the house out and see if there are any dings in the value that might hurt the sale price. Now, the inspection is sometimes optional. However, it is typically recommended to get an inspection because the inspectors are professional and are quite thorough and will actually tell you information that you may not have known about with regards to the foundation or the conditions of the attic or the plumbing or the AC. I've seen some inspection reports that are quite detailed and gave me a lot of information with regards to prudent repairs. As a first-time home buyer, you're not going to know anything about what you need on a house or what repairs a house needs unless you're brought up as a, a handyman by your parents. But you're not really going to know about the water heater or the plumbing or the roof or things like that as a first-time home buyer. But the inspector will be able to look into these things and find out, are there mold problems? Are there sewage problems? Any of these things which could be major headaches down the road, which you wouldn't have thought about when you were just excited about buying the house. And so it's really valuable doing a full inspection before you buy. Of course, I agree that inspections are very critical because they are a part of the information gathering process. And without this information, you may not be making a prudent financial decision. So they're almost a completely 100% necessary part of the process. And via the inspection, you'll find out, like I said, if the appliances are old or if there's equipment or things like the roof that need replacing soon or the stove isn't working or a shower isn't working, things like that. You want to know that up front because if you're not going to have any cash after you make the down payment and the initial couple payments, that's going to be a big hit to you financially where you're going to have to fork over a bunch of money. And if, if you don't have that, that's going to be a major problem. Well, you can also use that information to negotiate with the seller if anything needs fixing before you purchase it. So typically, the lender will ask you to shop around for insurance and obtain it in a certain period of time. Usually, it's about 30 to 60 days. So that insurance premium may or may not be higher than what was estimated when the lender was doing the math and figuring out your monthly premium. Something that you want to be aware of as a first-time home buyer is that the sticker price which you see that you're paying for a house does not equate to the actual cost you're going to end up paying for the house. And it doesn't equate to how much you're going to be forking over in the very beginning. You have to account for closing costs, which are going to be a few thousand, insurance, PMI if your down payment is less than 20%, other fees like that, or even initial repairs. All that gets added in that you're going to have to pay up in the beginning, and you have to account for that ahead of time. So to make the math easy, let's say you are considering buying a $100,000 house and putting down 20%. 
So you might think that you have to bring a check for $20,000 to closing, the lender brings a check for $80,000, and everything's good and you just close on the house and everything's done. What's actually going to happen is you're going to have to bring a check for about $25,000 or thereabouts, and the lender will bring his check for $80,000, and then you will continue on with the loan. So you need to be prepared for that when considering your budget. And the rule of thumb is that the real estate commission, which is typically 6%, is paid by the seller. However, all of the closing costs, all of the title fees, all of the appraisal fees, attorney fees are paid by the buyer. And then once you actually own the home, the costs that go into owning it that you want to account for are the principal payment, the interest payment, insurance payment, repairs, which are random. You don't really know when they're going to occur. Property taxes, which you're going to have to pay. And then HOA fees, depending on, on the home or where you live. Now let's move on with the process. Let's assume you've obtained lending, you've made an offer on a house, and you've obtained the inspection, and the buyer and the seller are both satisfied with the price. The next step is to finish all of the paperwork, which is traditionally done on closing day, which essentially means all of the final paperwork you sign off, all of the affidavits of occupancy, and all of the title documentation, which legitimately and legally signs the house over to you. Now, what is a title company? Typically, the closings are done at a title company. Well, an owner has to be bona fide and certified to own this property. So what a title company will do is they will hire an attorney to do a background check on the property to ensure that there are no liens outstanding on the property or there are no partial owners of some long-lost aunt that may come knocking on the door asking for the deed to the home later on. So the title company is very important to finalize the legality of your purchase. So on closing day, typically the buyer and the seller will meet in a common location, perhaps at the title company, sign all of the remaining documents, hand the keys over, and then that's the end of that. The seller will walk away and the buyer can move in as soon as he pleases. Typically the contract states that the purchaser must move in within a certain period of time, typically 60 days or so. And additionally, if the loan terms were for primary residence, during closing the buyer must sign an occupancy affidavit which states that they intend to live in the property for at least one year. Another thing you want to consider is if you have or are going to have kids, the school district where the house is, is important. You don't want to end up in an area where the school district where your kids will be obligated to go to school is terrible and you end up having to move. So that's essentially it. That is the entire process from start to finish of how to buy a home. If you're buying a house without a loan, you essentially skip the middle part about the lender and buy the home. Now that we've talked about buying it, let's talk about some of the biggest pitfalls and surprises or misconceptions that people may have with regard to home ownership or home buying so that the listeners may not be surprised when these things happen. So you mentioned PMI earlier. What that stands for is private mortgage insurance. It was a result of the 2008 housing crash. Congress enacted a law which says if you put down less than 20% on a house, you have to obtain mortgage insurance, which is on the order of 100 or so bucks a month, depending on the value of the property, which is insurance to the lender if you default on your loan. 
A second consideration that might surprise a lot of people is that during this entire process of home shopping and loan shopping, you might impact your credit score significantly if you're approaching many different lenders at the same time. So it's important to consider not purchasing a car or doing anything crazy with your credit six months or so before you buy the house so that your credit score is not dinged. Another surprise that I obtained from my first house was I did not realize that the mortgage would continue to go up year after year simply due to real estate taxes. In the home area that I bought, taxes were around 25 to 3% property tax, and because the value of the home might be appraised higher and higher each year, that bill goes up every year, which goes into my escrow account, and therefore increases the total amount of premium. So the first mortgage payment I paid might have been $800 steady for one year, and then on the 13th month, it jumped $100 a month, and I was not prepared for that sufficiently. Another consideration is that the seller and the buyer must not be interested parties. This is a affidavit that one has to sign when filling out the lending documents, which is essentially a protection from a conflict of interest between a buyer and seller to protect the interests of the lender due to some sort of underhanded, under-the-table scheme that a buyer and seller might be. So if it's a family member or somebody similar selling you the property, you will have to fully disclose that and explain why it is not a conflict of interest. One final consideration is that a neighborhood might have an HOA, which is Homeowners Association. Not all neighborhoods have them. If they do, it's essentially an association which spends money to maintain communal areas or pick up trash in the area and enforce restrictions on certain types of things. Maybe the grass has to be a certain height in the neighborhood or you can't add a basketball hoop in your driveway, certain things like that. So these homeowners associations have premiums that are obligatory to pay on top of the mortgage, typically separate. So that HOA fee needs to be understood before purchasing the home. Just to wrap it all together and summarize everything that we've discussed, one of the most important things to do is to gather as much information as possible before you make your decision. You want to know what the market is like, the price of a house that you can afford, what your future expectations are going to be. You want to invest the time up front because it's going to be worth it in the end. You don't want to end up spending more time deciding what clothes you're going to buy versus what house you're going to live in for the next 10 years. You definitely want to err on the side of conservatism when it comes to the finances. And if you're going to make a mistake, be conservative instead of aggressive. The other thing to consider there is when it comes to buying your first home or your starter home, you're not buying your dream home. You shouldn't have unrealistic expectations. And then when it comes down to the actual process, make sure that you have all your ducks in a row when it comes to your documentation so that it makes the process of the purchase a lot smoother. You don't want to go back and forth for months and then be denied and then have to start the process over or miss that good opportunity of that good house. Then from there, make sure you get a good inspection, consider all the little nuances, any repairs you might have to end up making, all the little details, take the time to consider those. And then when it comes down to the actual transaction, make sure to negotiate because paying the sticker price is not necessary. You're not buying from the store and it's commonplace to negotiate and you can save a lot of money so it's definitely worth your time. Make sure that you're not a buyer of necessity where you have options that you have on the table. You're not married to only one option. There's other fish in the sea. So keep your options open. Be willing to walk away if everything doesn't fall into place as you like it. So that's about it. If you're considering buying your first home anytime in the near future, let us know. 
Anyhow, catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Flame Podcast.